This episode of Light Source is brought to you by Squarespace.com. For fast, easy publishing of a professional website, check out photographers.squarespace.com slash ls. And when you sign up, use the promo code LS1 to receive a 10% discount. This is Zach Arias, and you're listening to Light Source. But I'm hoping that they'll start to call it One Light Source. And welcome to episode 72 of Light Source, the official podcast of StudioLighting.net, website introducing photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed Hidden, exclusive photographer with iStockphoto.com. Now, in today's episode, we have an interesting interview with Zach Arias. For those of you guys following along on Twitter, you know that this one's coming. And it's a really good interview. He's well known for the One Light Workshop and the One Light Workshop DVD that just came out. Zach has a number of websites that you can follow along with while we're doing the interview. You can follow along at ZachArias.com. It's Z-A-C-K-A-R-I-A-S.com or Zarius.com or you usedfilm.com. We mentioned a little bit about each of those during the interview, and he was good to talk to. Yeah, Zach is a really cool guy. And I have to say that we had our first technical problem probably in 70 (laughs) episodes, and Zach had the coolness to hang out with us and almost redo the entire interview. So thank you for that, Zach. Guy's a trooper. Yeah, it was definitely a trooper. And I think we got to recover everything that we had talked about the first time. So that was was good, too. (laughs) Oops. Hey, technical glitches happen, and we're lucky that they happen as few as they do. Absolutely. Well, we were talking a little bit before the show. We have some bad weather going around the country right now, and and you found a a photo-related website about it. Yeah, actually, I have to give credit to Knapp for pointing this out to us, but there's a great organization called Operation Photo Rescue, and it's at operationphotorescue.org. And I really wanted to give them a plug in the show because I think what they're doing is awesome. Basically, if you're any good at Photoshop and uh, manipulating photos and restoring photos, they're looking for volunteers who basically take photos from albums and picture frames and stuff that are destroyed in Hurricane Ike. And for the victims of the hurricane, they're restoring these photos at no cost. So it's, it's really an amazing thing that really has a lot of potential to impact people's lives, I think. Oh, that's cool. I've read so many articles about like photos that have withstood Katrina and and things like that. So, I mean, it's really cool that people are gathering around and trying to recreate the history that some people are losing. So, yeah. And it's just another really cool way for design professionals and photographers to get involved. So check that out. I'll put a link in the show notes for that as well. And I guess that's probably also another call to to remind people to to back up their digital stuff. (laughs) Right. (laughs) On-site, off-site, all those typical backup procedures, um, those are all things that that we should be reminded in in something like this because we don't have paper photos anymore. We have digital stuff, and we've got to protect those bits. Right. You had Twittered something the other day about a new online storage place, didn't you? Yeah. Actually, I mentioned, too, the other day I was looking at Dropbox, who has just gone public with they no longer are in private beta and dropbox is pretty cool you get a free two gig account and it basically lets you have a folder on any machine that you own which when you copy files to it it gets synchronized throughout their servers as well as any machine that you have dropbox installed so it's a pretty cool service yeah they haven't announced their payment plans yet but honestly i've tried several of these and this this one is pretty robust so far i like it a lot it doesn't matter what platform you're on you can install dropbox so 
it's kind of nice. I was thinking it might be even good for sharing photos with family members and stuff like that. One of the features that I liked about Dropbox, and this is also true of some of the others like SugarSync, a couple of the other backup services, is that when you drag a folder of photos into your Dropbox folder, not only does it back up those photos, but also automatically creates web photo slideshows out of it, which you can share. So yeah, just does a couple of things like that that make it really simple to use. This morning, I also mentioned a new one. Well, it hasn't been new, but it has been in private beta until today, which is now open to the public, and it's called Backblaze. And I didn't get to install that one, but it looks like a pretty good service as well. They're kind of pitching it as very, very simple automatic backups. You really can just sort of set it and forget it, and it will back up your photo drive or whatever you want it to do. And Backblaze is unlimited backups, so unlimited data for $5 a month. So we're starting to see some pretty interesting online services in the cloud, which I think are going to become pretty popular. And that's very cool because, I mean, you can back up as much as you want at your desktop or your wherever, your studio or wherever it is. But if something happens to that building, having redundant backups inside that building is not going to be helpful at all. So (laughs) that's right. There's a lot to be said about an offsite online backup that uh, you know, just takes important stuff and synchronizes it to an offsite server location. I mean, right. If you're doing anything commercial, it's definitely uh, something that you should look into building into your budget because it's a huge benefit to have something like that if something catastrophic was to go wrong. Sure. And I think another interesting thing is that you have access to those files from anywhere after they're synchronized. So that's nice, too. And it would be curious to see how people are using those because, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't take every one of my photos and stick in there. But we'll have to talk to some photographers that are using this and see how they're doing their plan with an online backup service, whether they're picking like their their select shots from a shoot or whether they're picking their ultimate favorites from a shoot, like their portfolio items and backing them up. I don't know. I'd be curious to see how people are using them. Well, maybe we should start a thread on the Flickr group about that. Sure. That sounds good. While we're talking about sites, I stumbled across a website. It's called dripbook.com. And it's kind of like an online portfolio sort of thing. It kind of reminds me a lot of, say, the workbook stock that a lot of photographers talk about, that they place an advertisement in there. And this goes out to all of the photo buyers and all of the ad agencies and things like that. Most professional photographers that you know I read about in PDN, they say that you know in terms of their marketing, one of the standard things that they do is they do an ad in workbook stock. Well, Dripbook seems like it's kind of going to be something similar, only online. Oh, okay. It's a worldwide community of professional visual artists that offers you an, an easy upload portfolio, easy promote. You can send private portfolio books out for instant feedback to different people. And it's kind of like a, a clearinghouse of artists that an art buyer could come to and kind of browse through a bunch of different artist portfolios and see who they may want to hire for their project. So I didn't look at the pricing, but they say that it's affordable easy to get things up there and export your book out to Facebook blogs and all kinds of things. So it seems like it's a very cool sharing and, and getting your name out there sort of thing. That's something worth checking out. You can check it out at www.dripbook.com. It looks like it's invite only at this point, but uh, we'll certainly keep our eye on that. Cool. While we're also talking about websites, there's someone I mentioned in the Flickr group. There are some workshops by the Lighting Essentials website. It's dongiannati.com slash workshops. He has a bunch of workshops at different places, so you can check them out on the website and see what you think. You found one of our former guests has a new redesigned website, Bill. 
Yeah, actually, David Bean, who was a guest on our show, I forget which episode it was, it was a little while ago, last year. He's just redone his website, and I think he did a really cool job. So if you guys enjoyed that interview, head on over to visualreserve.com and check out his new work and his new portfolio. It's great. You did a great job, David. Yeah, his new images are awesome. I was going through some of his music stuff, and it's just we might need to get him back on the show and talk about some of his newer work, because he's got some amazing musician portraits and stuff. I think that would be great. I'll have well, my, I'll David, have my uh, people contact his people. <laughs> Twitter us, David. Yeah. Another post that I saw in our light source Flickr group was uh, Fox Commercial Media posted a story about equipment gross out. <laughs> <laughs> and this, if I saw the story somewhere else other than that happened to one of our listeners, I would think it's one of those kind of urban legend sort of things. And <laughs> right. uh, I think someone else, one of the first posts says, sounds like a modern urban legend. Basically, he had a little trouble fitting a CF card into his card reader, and he pulled the card out. There was some weird gunk on it. Uh, he looked inside the card reader, and there was a small cockroach that was impaled <laughs> in the CF pins. <laughs> oh, Death by compact flash. That's one way to get rid of those cockroaches. <laughs> right. For that story and many other exciting and gory details, you can visit our Flickr group. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one test of it, the SanDisk. Um, I believe someone had questioned him, and the reader still works fine. So amongst all the other abuse, they'll stand up to cockroach guillotines. Infestations. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's not the only sticky situation that I've read about. A photographer Jill Greenberg, uh, someone uh, that I've actually kind of really enjoyed her work for a while, recently did a photo shoot of Senator John McCain for The Atlantic magazine. And she did one of her trademark portraits with the, the multiple lights and the, the kind of shiny people look. And that was fine. But I guess while she was setting up some of her other lights, she took some liberties and turned a few of the lights off and snapped a couple pictures for herself in different weird styles. Uh, there was one that was like coming from underneath that was very Bella Lugosi looking. There was another one that was lit just the top of the head and has like a really dark shadowy look to it. And she went ahead and kind of doctored up some of her own little political ads and posted them on her website. Right. Now, since then, there's been a lot of talk on uh, pdnpulse.com. The comments have ranged, you know, <laughs> obviously showing some people's political affiliation with against McCain. I think by and large, a lot of people came out saying that this was very underhanded what she did and kind of takes photographers back a little bit and really calls into an ethics sort of thing. And actually, I saw another post on PDN a few days after that where the Atlantic magazine came out releasing a statement saying that she had disgraced herself. They're appalled by the manipulated images that she created for her own website and that she betrayed her, her magazine and disgraced her profession. Right. So, I mean, there, there's definitely some serious fallout from this, from her, from doing something. You kind of got to check your political opinions at the door when you're put in a position of, especially someone that as high profile as Senator McCain is at this right. point. She was basically saying that the magazine should have made sure that she was not politically oriented before hiring her. But I don't know, man. I kind of think that if you're hired as a professional photographer to do a specific job, it's kind of an unwritten thing, which I imagine it won't be unwritten anymore, but sort of unwritten that any kind of outtakes from the shoot or any kind of images that are taken basically are the clients, or at least they have the right to know what you're going to do with them. If they commission them. So that, that's kind of interesting part of it to me. To give her credit, she did exactly what she was hired to do. She delivered to Atlantic Magazine the photo that they wanted. 
I was surprised to see that she had shot him anyway, given that I knew some of her work where it's been very politically motivated and very against what Senator McCain stands for. So I was surprised to see that she had did the work to begin with. But when you're doing a job, you kind of have to not take the liberty or abuse of a situation like this. It definitely pushes the boundaries of what she is allowed to do. And, you know, it, it wouldn't matter which candidate it was. It's disrespectful to do that. And actually, it goes a little further that uh, Bill Hannigan told PDN that the agency that represented her is no longer representing Green and the decision was mutually agreed upon. Mm-hmm. So she has left the agency that she was repped by. Wow over this whole ordeal. So, I mean, it's definitely a serious problem. Yeah. Well, it's absolutely something that photographers need to keep in mind. And I'm sure that art buyers will from this point on and editors. Before we get into our interview with Zach Arias, there is a new one-on-one video available on studiolighting.net where Mark Wallace talks about light ratios. So that's probably something worth watching. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a good one. I think Mark did a great job as usual, but this is a question that we get a lot. People wanting to know how to balance lights in the studio and do the metering that comes with it. So check that out. It's probably a good one because that's one that we usually botch up when we try and explain it, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Some things are just easier to understand when you can see it. (laughs) This is true because I know we sit here and go back and forth and go, no, that's not what you mean. You mean this. (laughs) Well, cool. While we're talking about light, let's get into talking with the One Light Workshop guy, Zach Arias. And welcome to this edition of The Light Source. We have with us this evening Atlanta, Georgia-based photographer, Zach Arias. He's a talented music portrait, all-around great photographer. He does some great workshops. Has a One Light Workshop DVD that we got a chance to check out. It was really great and probably one of the better lighting DVDs that I've seen in a long time. Thanks for coming on the show, Zach. Absolutely, guys. Thanks for having me. Before we get into it, tell people a little bit about your style of photography and the type of work that you do and kind of subjects that interest you. Well, I found my niche in the music industry. And when I got a a second chance to come back into photography after having to leave the industry for a few years, my motto was anything but porn. Um, (laughs) I'll, I'll shoot whatever. And previously, I wanted to be kind of a big-time commercial-slash-editorial photographer and finance my own documentary projects because I have this heart for photojournalism, but this head for commercial work. And the family to raise photojournalism really wasn't an industry I felt I could go into and make a living with. So I got a chance again to start shooting with my friend Mark Climey here in Atlanta. I started shooting weddings with him, and I would shoot anything, family portraits, weddings, tabletop product work, real estate, whatever I could do to to get money coming in to pay the bills. And a friend of mine invited me out to a concert one night, and I shot an image that night that was a benchmark photo for me. And it got me thinking about, well, what could I do with music photography? And that set me out on a about two or three month research endeavor of looking into the music photography industry and who was doing what, and was there a money trail that could be found? And what I found is that I didn't want to pursue shooting concerts. Being a, a concert photographer, you could shoot the first three songs. If you're lucky to shoot that many, then you're out of the venue and you're not working directly with the artist. And I've, for years and years, I've been a big fan of Mark Seliger's work. I would say he's probably one of the number one influences on my work. Very clean, very simple editorial portraiture. So I decided I would start shooting press kit photos. And it took about a year to build up that value for local bands to come to me and 
and pay me any amount of money. But after five years now, I've worked with close to 400 artists or bands that I've worked with in five years. That's great. I've uh, stayed very busy by being very affordable, but uh, I'm working on that now, getting my rates up a little bit. Uh, shooting that many bands in that short amount of time has, has proved to be uh, a challenge in that you can hit a burnout stage. And I realized I was hitting that burnout stage about a year and a half ago and began formulating some sort of rebranding process, how to take my music photography up a few levels by continuing to bring bread and butter work in. And I'm in the middle of getting all of that figured out right now. So it sounds like you've been through a lot of different changes in your work and your career up to this point. How did you begin to become a teacher? It started when I was actually in photography school. I, I failed out of art school uh, pretty quickly. I, I had much more uh, head for the technical information than I do the conceptual. And when I was in photography school at a little tech school here in Atlanta called Gwinnett Tech, it was a two-year intensive commercial photography program. They decided they wanted to start up their continuing education classes again at night for the public, and they wanted to offer a Photo 101 class. And I was able to swing it as kind of an um, independent study sort of class credit for one of my electives in the program and started teaching Photo 101 at night when I was still in photography school during the day. Nice. I was in about my fifth or sixth quarter, and I loved it. I loved seeing people who had a passion for the craft or wanted to learn more and helping people along the way. I've gotten to assist many great photographers along the way, and all of them were always open and willing to help me, and all of them always said that anything I've done to help you out, you've got to remember to pay that back to the next kid coming along. So that's always kind of been a philosophy that was bred into me was giving back and teaching and not hoarding your information. I love helping people out. It's a lot of fun and, and you get to just meet people from all stages of this industry as they pursue their career. That's great. I'd like to talk a little bit more about your workshop in a few minutes, but before we do, you also mentioned before we got on the interview that you're building out a new studio. How's that going? Yep. The first load of lumber showed up today. So I've been in a holding pattern for the last year while I'm in the middle of rebranding. I'm trying to take my music work to a national level. And locally, I'm trying to build a kind of a headshot model of photography business. And I've been in this kind of temporary holding space of a studio that just really wasn't working out for us. And a studio opened up down the street from us and it's a little more square footage and it's a more open plan. It's big enough to have a psych wall and I'm a big fan of having a psych wall on hand. It's all part of this rebranding. This is going to be officially my fourth studio space that I've worked out of in five years. But this is the one that I'm actually going to invest in a real build-out and, and make it exactly how I want it. So it's, it's an exciting time, but it's, it's a trying time, too, because it's going to require a good bit of capital investment into building it out. But I plan on being there for quite some time. As you're building this studio, I know you talk about the psych wall and stuff like that. Is that something that you're getting prefab or is that something that you're building on your own or how are you working that? We've looked at a couple different options. We've looked at the infinity walls, the Calumet builds that are fantastic prefabricated psych wall pieces. Kind of the beauty about those are it's possible to take the wall apart and move it to another place. But financially, they cost a good bit more than the psych wall that I'm having built. I have a good friend who is a carpenter, 
And after talking a lot about designs and all of that and looking at all the work that he's done, I've decided to have a, a permanent psych built in the place. Well, not so permanent that it can't come out whenever I you know, do decide to move out of the space, but we're going to have one built, plywood and MDF and all of that. Financially, it was a better decision for me. It's not quite as much as having a modular psych put in, and I'm really over trying to get work done on a nine-foot-wide roll of seamless paper. <laughs> you, can, you can make it happen, but uh, at the end of the day, you're, you're spilling out a lot of expletives under your breath uh, <laughs> because it's, it's never wide enough, it's never tall enough, you know, the wrinkles and all of that in it, and you're just constantly stressed out because you're trying to make the most out of a little. But a uh, big, beautiful psych wall, you give it a good coat of paint, and you don't have to worry about it. Great. What are some of the other things that you, from your experience so far, that you wanted to make sure that you had in place for your new gigs? Probably outside of the shooting applications at the new place. I think my priorities were, could I build a site wall? That was number one. Number two would be really nice natural light. There's kind of a myth about me around on the internet that I'm, I only like to light things, that I'm completely against available light photography or natural light photography, which is completely not true. For headshots, I actually prefer natural light. So the natural light of the place was very important. But the third most important thing were, could we throw parties in the space? <laughs> and everything I do, everything I can track back to building a successful career has been networking with my peers and networking within the industry that I work and networking with people in Atlanta. So taking some cues from some other uh, designers and some other people in, in the creative industry who have space. And I started seeing people give art shows inside of their space. There was a graphic designer I did some work with a few years back and about once a quarter, he'll throw an art show in his space. And I thought, man, this is, this is a great idea. And we started to do those events. I'll open up my studio space to a local artist and give it to them for free. I'm just asking that they bring, you know, 75 people or so. And we'll put out food and drink and anything they sell, they get to keep 100% of. I look at it as my studio can sit empty on a Friday night or we can fill it to the brim with 75 or 100 people. And we give an artist an opportunity to show their work and pursue what they love doing without going through all of the process of finding a gallery and, and waiting six months to get in and all of that. We can throw a show together in 30 days. This temporary space I've been in really wasn't a good space to have those kind of events in. So when we were looking for a new space, probably our third point on the list was, can we throw events here? Can we network? Can we have photography get-togethers? Can we host other people's workshops? I like to host other workshops that, that come in. Last year, I hosted George Weir, who's a uh, photojournalist, wedding photographer, and John Michael Cooper and his wife came in and, and did a couple of days of workshops in our studio. And so I like that the studio is not just for me, but I can open it up to other photographers and other artists, either within just my city or from around the country. So that was a big, important thing for us. That's a really great idea. Do you, do you find that it boosts your business along the way? Oh, absolutely. We have people come in the studio who never heard of us. When I was strictly just I'm Zach Arias. I'm a music photographer. I would say that it really didn't boost my music photography. I, I would book a couple jobs out of events like that, but it was just simply building my brand and building my name and being part of the community 
that would get people to talk about the studio and talk about our work and, and all of that. Now that I'm starting to build a, a headshot brand, that is going to be reaching out to a larger market. Real estate agents need headshots. Lawyers need headshots. Business owners need headshots. Actors and actresses need headshots, of course. So this headshot brand that I'm trying to build has a far-reaching kind of demographic I need to reach. So the more events that I can hold in my space, the more people I can educate about what we do there in the studio and what we offer. And I really feel that that's going to be a big part of our marketing in 2009, holding monthly or bi-monthly events. Now, the headshot business that you're beginning to build now, is that what we find at usedfilm.com? Yes, usedfilm.com. I decided to keep that name for the headshot business because I've advertised and networked usedfilm.com as my music photography for five years. But that was all local. So within Atlanta, people kind of have an idea of what used film is and they know it's connected to me and it's photography. And I'm sort of branding it now under the name used film studios. And my plan is not to have multiple studios, but I wanted to give a sense of plural name to it because I'm trying to build this as a business model that I don't have to shoot every picture. Okay. Uh, my studio manager, Eric, bringing him on board of this is how I want headshots done and other young photographers in Atlanta who are wanting to shoot more. I'm hoping to build it within the next year or two that I've got a good staple of three photographers or so who can be there shooting headshots and they're making money in the studios, I'm making money and I don't have to be there for every single click of the shutter. That's and a good business model. If I can build that up, that can be my bread and butter that local bands have been for several years. And if my overhead is being covered via the headshots, then I can be much more selective with the music artists that I work with and more selective about the budget. I'd love to be doing 10 bands a year, let's say. Bands that are going to come in for a full day and we can have a full crew. Like I said, I'm good with the technical, but I struggle with the conceptual. So the more I can bring in a stylist and a hair and makeup artist and have some other creatives on set to help me with conceptual work, technically I can pull it off. But the conceptual part, I need help with. And that help requires more money and requires more location fees and requires better wardrobe. And so suddenly the budgets go from 250 bucks to 2,500 bucks, $5,000. So I'm hoping that the music side, which can be found at ZachArius.com, is something I'm very hands-on and is just me. That's not going to get farmed out to anyone else. But the headshots are great because they come to the studio. There's no location scouting. We don't have to hop in the van and drive 50 miles around town. We don't have to get kicked out of locations. Um, (laughs) You know, like if if you've seen the DVD, you you saw me get kicked out of two different places. That's not going to happen on headshot jobs. So it's a much more efficient business model. And I I feel so bad saying that because I'm a photographer. Dang it. You know, I'm a creative. And I, I feel like I should be sitting in front of a PowerPoint presentation right now talking about efficient business model. Right. <laughs> you know, the fact is you turn 35 years old, you have two kids, you have another one on the way, you have a dog and all of that. You know, many mouths to feed around here. You've really got to start looking at the business and, and it can't all just be run and gun, lots of fun. You know, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll figure out how to make next month's rent next week. You've got to start 
really kind of looking long term when you want health insurance and and life insurance and and you like to actually maybe put something in savings. You wake up one day and you go, crap, it's a business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't think about this. So I decided headshots and the headshots is the way to go. Probably the main reason I like the headshots is because I'd still be working with a lot of creatives like musicians. I understand them. I get them. We have a common thread between us and I wouldn't be very good at you know, corporate event photography because I don't follow sports. Right. So if I'm there talking and someone wants to talk to me about, you know, Tiger Woods games on Saturday, I'd be lost. Um, <laughs> it's just not an industry I can run in. Since you mentioned excelling at the technical stuff, let's, let's switch gears just a little bit. I'm curious about something you said a few minutes ago. You said that you actually prefer natural light for headshots. What is it about yep. natural light shooting that really you feel makes a good headshot? Well, like I referred to earlier about when I shot my friend's band and I started researching, when I decided uh, about a year and a half ago that I'd start looking at headshots, it's been research, 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 research. I I cannot suggest researching your industry enough of, of what you're wanting to get into. And if you start digging into the background of the headshot industry, you're going to find several different philosophies about lit portraits or natural light portraits, you're going to find different styles from different cities. So there's kind of a a style in the LA market that it's a different style than a New York market that's different than an Atlanta market. And you start looking at agents. I'm typically, and and I I talk about all this, typically looking at actors and actresses looking for headshots. That's the first little section of the pie of the headshot industry I'm, I'm looking to go for. And Many of the agents here in Atlanta like to refer photographers who use natural light. The philosophy behind a headshot for an actor and actress is that it's a portrait of the eyes. And you focus on the eyes. The eyes are going to be the first thing that you look at. There's the whole, you know, the eyes are the window to the soul or whatever you want to talk about. But like many people, if a subject is in front of your camera and they have that anticipation about that pop of the flash, Mm-hmm. There will be a little bit of a stress in the eye. They're waiting for that flash to hit. Not a lot of people can just naturally sit in front of a strobe and not tense up a little bit, especially in their eyes. When the flash pops, your nose doesn't move. You don't move your lips. Your eyes are going to blink. Right. And if you're trying to really focus in on the eyes and you want the eyes to pop out of the headshot, if they're at all anxious about that pop of flash, it's going to show up. You're going to see it. Oh. So... Finding a studio with beautiful natural light was important to me because as I go to these agents now and go to the different agencies, I can tell that I'm a natural light photographer and I have a natural light studio. And in my market, that's important. Well, how are you going to control the natural light? Well, I'm going to go really broke buying a bunch <laughs> of great The studio that we just put a lease on has a 64-foot front wall with I'd say 75% of that 64 feet is floor-to-ceiling windows. Wow. So it's absolutely gorgeous, but it is going to be kind of tricky to control. So the plan is is we're going to run two very heavy-duty cables above the windows. They're broken up into five windows in this wall. They're about the size of a single-car garage door, each window is. Hmm. On the cable closest to the window is going to be a white sheer material that can diffuse the light. 
because in the afternoon we actually get direct sunlight into the studio, so I need to diffuse that. And then on the inner table, we're going to put a thick, opaque black curtain. So I'll be able to close down four out of five windows or three out of five windows. I can cut the light or I can diffuse it all. And then with C-stands, I can bring in flags and fill cards and I can subtract light or add light as needed. But I'll be working on making it as natural of a fitting for someone so that they're not just surrounded by all this photography equipment that can be kind of intimidating to people. So whatever equipment I bring in close to my subject, I'm working hard to to make it as less intimidating to them as possible. I like to have a conversation, and as they're sitting there talking to me and I'm talking to them, I'm just talking, and I pull my camera up, and I fire off some frames, and then we talk, and I fire some frames, and we talk, and I try to build it into then I'm just shooting and talking less and shooting more. So I'm trying to make headshots a a conversation where I'm taking photographs. That's a great way to put it. Well, you're known for the one light workshops that you host. And I know that you said that that there's that great myth out there about you, but why have you done these workshops focusing only on one light? Well, typically when people ask me why sunlight, my my typical answer is that's all I could afford. (laughs) And um, I couldn't afford three lights or four lights. And if you asked me to fly a hair light and hit a perfect three to one lighting ratio, I would be scratching my head for a few minutes trying to figure it out. Part of it all comes from when I got started back in photography, my dear friend Mark Kleine shooting weddings and he had me come in and start shooting weddings with him. And he bought me a Nikon D100 camera body and I had six weddings to shoot with him to pay it off. And I had an old Vivitar 285 flash. And my first wedding with him, I was employed at Kinko's and I was a project mangler for Kinko's. (laughs) And by my second wedding, I was on my own. I left my job within two weeks of firing my first picture again. I was just, I was back. But I I didn't have any lenses. I didn't have any compact flash cards. And I had this old 285 white flash. So with my last check from Kinko's, I bought a light stand and an infrared trigger and a 60-inch umbrella. And Mark would allow me to borrow lenses and compact flash cards as needed. It was kind of funny after every wedding I'd look in his bag going do you need this and do you need that can I borrow this and could I use this this week and I'll bring it back next wedding and so he was kind of my lending library of photo equipment for about six months and I had that 1285 flash and I had to make the most out of it my first run in photography before my life all fell apart and I had to walk away I went severely in debt I was just in debt for the eyeballs and I had every piece of equipment. I had 35 millimeter, I had medium format, I had large format, I had lights. I had stuff I didn't even know how to use, but I knew <laughs> I needed it. And I, I would assist this photographer over here, and he had this kind of equipment. So I, well, that's the stuff I want to shoot, so I better get that kind of equipment. And it would just go on credit cards and credit cards. So this time around, it was family first and landlord first and utility bills first and groceries first. Uh, camera equipment second, and no credit cards, no debt. I got to make do with whatever I have. And the 285 was very limiting, but I learned that flash. And it dictated what time of day I could do my shoots. It dictated what locations I could shoot, how many people I could shoot, uh, all dictated by how little equipment I had. And I was always just living right on the edge of its capabilities. I was, you know, always at 
full power when I wanted more. And there were times with the 285, I wanted to dial the power down more and I couldn't. As I'm shooting more and posting images online for feedback and critique and people start asking me questions and emails start coming in going, how did you shoot that with the 285? (laughs) How How did you pull that off? At the end of the day, a light is a light. Whether you've got a $3,000 pro photo rig or an $89.285, if you put a pro photo in a 60-inch umbrella and you put a 285 in a 60-inch umbrella, light is light. Now, the pro photo is going to give you more of it, but it's going to look pretty much the same. A, a pro photo rig at three grand would allow me to shoot at four in the afternoon, where at a 285, I've got to wait until seven in the evening. So my philosophy was it's just light. And I, I don't have a lot of it, so how can I use it? And that turned into a group of photographers down in Tampa who asked me to come down and kind of give a workshop and a presentation about how I did what I did. And I kind of laughed, like, it would be embarrassing to go stand in front of my peers with a, a D100, and uh, it's got about a billion pictures shot through it, and a, a 285 flash held together by duct tape and the Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> and then they said, we'll pay you. And I said, oh, well, when do you want me That first one light workshop down in Tampa was, I thought, a disaster because I had never given a workshop before. I'd taught, you know, one hour, two hour photo 101 classes, but to go a 14 hour day or whatever, lighting. But it it turned into, hey, we heard about your workshop. Can you come to our city and do it? Can you come to our city? Can you come to our city? And and it, it just sort of built. And I love doing it. And I've done it a lot in the last year as I go through this rebranding process, as I start to tell my bread and butter, hey, I'm not shooting at those rates anymore. I'm not your local music photographer really any longer. I'm cutting off my revenue. So I've allowed the workshop to ramp up over the last year to hold me while I go through this painful process Mm -hmm. of trying to get my branding back together in a different way. In 2009, I'll be doing fewer workshops, but we're changing up the workshop. I'm actually going to go back to a foundational sort of back to photo 101. I see a lot of people coming through the one light workshop that when I mention the word reciprocal, eyes just sort of glaze over or I'm 10 feet away from my subject shooting a portrait with a 200 millimeter lens and that doesn't compute and how the optics change perspectives and things like that. So I've seen the need of, we need to get down to basics. There's a lot of people who really want to start this as a career They've bought a camera and they've signed up on a forum and they're trying to get it out there and hack through the weeds. And I'm I'm hoping to bring something in 2009 to the table that will be, so you want to be a photographer. Let's have this boot camp style, three-day intensive of you need a foundation. It needs to be based off of some good technical stuff that's been around for 100 years, you know. I feel like I'm like a fighter pilot coming out of a hard turn. I'm going to be ramping out of the hectic workshop schedule and back into shooting mode. 2008, I've been doing like two cities a a month. It's a fantastic thing. I love it. But lately, I've been telling folks at the workshop that the information is free. They're just paying for me to have to get on a plane because the travel can just kill you. you got two kids at home, and, and my awesome wife, Megan, is expecting so that travel can be a little much but yeah it it just turned into this thing from that that one workshop in florida and then it became the request of would you do a dvd would you do a dvd and we started seriously looking at the dvd last year kind of kicking it around in our head of is this something viable should we do this and if so how 
I have a three-chip camera. We could shoot it. And then I thought, no, because if we shoot it, it probably won't be released until at least, like, 2035. <laughs> um, <laughs> if, if I'm in charge of editing, it'll be like the making of a film that's never made. So I started researching. Again, everything I do is research. I will research things to the nth degree. Start looking at the DVDs that are out there. Let's see what we like, what we don't like. And started looking into the production of it. And the tough thing is, is is no debt, no credit cards. So figuring out how to do something of, of a high quality production value and do it without taking on debt was part of the biggest logistical problem that we had. That's um, awesome. We've, we've replaced it now with the logistical problem of figuring out how to do shipping. Right. <laughs> still working that out. Wow, I'm, I'm even more impressed by the, the DVD now that I know that you did it that way. That's that's terrific, man. Way yeah, you know, we wanted to bring something out to market that wasn't your typical. When I started asking around about workshops, like, okay, if I'm going to do a workshop, I better research this thing. And everyone I talked to said, please don't let it be a nine to five slideshow of your work with a brown bag lunch. And, you know, and some nice philosophical things to kind of keep you for 24 hours, but nothing to hold you through. So that's why my workshop doesn't have a slideshow of my pictures. I talk about my backstory because I feel my backstory is important in encouraging people to not go into debt, to put their family first. Photography will require everything of you if you let it. It will take your time, your money, your family. um, And I let it do that to me. So my story is important, but I'm not important in the process. And it's, I don't want people leaving the workshop with questions still unanswered. So for the DVD, I didn't want to be a guy in a studio with softboxes all around me, just reading a cue card about (laughs) F-stops, you know, and at some point you can't sex up F-stops, you know, you've got to talk about the technical, unfortunately. So when we were planning this all out, I said, I want to shoot all of the technical stuff in like back alleyways. So that was kind of our cue. Instead of sitting in the studio going over the technical, we head out into downtown Atlanta and got into back alleyways and, and just to break things up, just to be different. And our goal was to make sure that when people watch the DVD, they didn't feel like they were just advertised to. Like, wow, I just paid $200 for a commercial. Um <laughs> <laughs> telling me I need $30,000 worth of lighting equipment to make Walmart portraits. Um, and we wanted to mix it up. And we wanted to have a good soundtrack and just talk through the process of shooting. Here we are in this situation. This is what I want. I'm not getting it. It's not working out for me. So the police are here. What can I do? Yeah, the police are here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be honest with you, in the first round of editing, when I sat down with the editor and they put the rough cut together, I almost killed the whole project. Oh, no. Oh, I'm glad you, you know, didn't. It, it, it was just that rough cut. There was no music. There was no finish. It was just rough stuff cut together. And I, I nearly, because I was just going broke. It was like a government project. It took longer. <laughs> it cost more money. I'm like, I, I can't put another dime. In fact, the audio quality on the post-production part when I'm going through Lightroom, I wish I could re- just redo the audio on that, but it, it was my last day, my last dime, and there's just no going back. We're living with it. I've never had the feeling of putting something out there in the world and then sitting back, biting my nails, going, oh gosh, I hope this works. Well, you did an amazing job. It was, well, thank you. It's one of our favorites. We've seen a bunch of lighting DVDs, and it's it's really great mix of entertainment and, and education. I think you did a great job. 
Well, thank you very much. It was a huge collaborative effort. My wife, Megan, told me, no, you've gone this far in it. You keep going. And Eric and Kara and Matthew Martz, who produced it, he and his wife just allowed us into their home many, many late nights through the editing process of getting that thing finished up. Awesome. So it's, um, I'm not ready to go do another one, to tell you the truth, but, <laughs> but I am proud of it now, now that it's done. But you should be very proud of it because it's entertaining to watch and it's not straight lecture. It's not, like you said, it's not boring. And I think one of the things that really caught my attention that I thought was a lot of fun was when you were downtown and you just grabbed three people that were going out on the town for the night and said, yeah, here, come on over. Let's get your picture taken. And then you get them in the scene and then you turn around and start giving instruction and they're, they're kind of like, what's going on here? What what did we walk into? Exactly. It was just so casual. And it's like, I feel like that's the way that your photos come across as well as like you capture that slice of life type of thing. And that's, uh, that's kind of where I want to get to with my work. So it's good to see. I can say that the, the key to me for that was that when I could get to that sort of arena of making photographs was when I stopped worrying about the technical. You know, the technical part can just sometimes be that huge brick wall in our mind where we're trying to be creative but we're tweaking out about f-stops and shutter speeds and light ratios and, and all of that stuff. And when those moments begin to happen of, hey, I'm not worried about my light. I know what I'm doing with it, and I know what it's going to look like, and I can anticipate what that flash is going to look like when it fires. When that intimidation of the technical can begin to melt away, then all you're doing is just dealing with the, the person in front of you and building that relationship that's so important. That's, that's awesome. That's something that I really try to convey to people. This technical has to become second nature. It has to become like breathing for you. And it's possible. And one reason I go with the one light, other than the fact that that was all I could afford. I've seen so many people go buy a three or four light kit because they're told, well, you need to have a main and you need to have a fill and you need to have a hair light and you need to have a background light. And, And someone goes and sets up four light right out of the box and turns them all on and they all fire. And you're kind of like, oh, what the heck just happened? And, uh, you know, what do, I, what do I do? It can be so intimidating that the, that the lights end up in the closet and they just sit there and they collect dust. So you get that one light down and you just learn your basics with one simple light source. You will evolve into m- multiple light setups is, is what I like to tell people because you'll be sitting in post-production one day looking at a picture and it'll be lit with one light and you'll start to say, if I had a second light, I could have popped it over here on the background and given myself a little more separation, or I could have added another light to this part of the scene to do this. And you'll just naturally evolve into more sophisticated lighting scenarios if you'll really just concentrate on getting that first one done first. Then the second and the third and the fourth can start to come in. Well, that's some excellent advice. And we really appreciate you taking all the extra time tonight to hang out with us and share some of your perspective and we really appreciate the dvd as well and we're we're hoping that we can do our best to get the word out well thank you and i i just really appreciate what you guys do as well so thank you well that's all we have for this episode of light source the brightest podcast on the internet be sure to check out the show notes for this episode and all the other LightSource episodes at the website studiolighting.net. And you can also send us an email comment at studiolighting at gmail.com when you can send us comments, questions, or just images that you'd like us to see. And if you really want to get involved with some of the other listeners to the show, you can head over to the LightSource Flickr group at www.flickr.com slash groups slash LightSource. 
You can post your images and get feedback on your photography as well as seeing the things that we're taking pictures of. And as always, if you missed any of these links, our quick outro here, you can find all of that and more at www.studiolighting.net. Till next time. Bye-bye. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.